Human beings, as a general rule, uh, really enjoy order. We are very chaotic creatures, but we enjoy order. And I think that's kind of funny, you know, most of our lives are spent navigating chaos. Um, but I think most of the time that is due to the fact that we have competing ideas of what order looks like. Order in my life versus order in your life can be a very different thing. And so we kind of butt heads with each other and then we have chaos or friction. Or it's at least in some sort of struggle to find order. And we're, we're always in that struggle, trying to find a place where things are clear, where we understand what's going on, where we have a handle on our lives. We like to know what things are, where things are, when things are happening, and it makes us feel this element of control. There was this time when my family was in, uh, I think we were in Italy. I asked both my parents and they had different answers. So I'm going to go with my answer. I'm pretty sure we were in Italy and I was probably 14 at the time. Old enough to know what was going on, but not old enough to have an opinion on what was happening. So we were underground in the subway system and we had a lot of people we were trying to move throughout the city and we thought, okay, if the subway doors open and there's too many people, half of us will go and half of us will stay and catch up later. No one knew which half that was going to be and so when the subway doors opened and there were too many people, everyone rushed forward to try and get onto the subway and then everyone tried to rush backwards to get off of the subway. What ended, what ended up happening is my dad pulled me onto the subway and my mom pulled me off and I got stuck right in the middle and the door shut on my face. And I remember sitting there and it just held for the longest time and I just felt like I've given up. I'm done. I am not in control of the plan. I'm not in control of the communication. I'm not in control of my body right now being torn into two different ways. And then because I wasn't in control, I ended up losing control and just being furious at the whole situation. So that's a time when I was not in control and I desperately sought it. I, I desperately wanted order in that situation. And our desire for order and control is, is not a bad thing. It keeps us moving towards a coherent direction. It keeps us stable and sane in many cases and it helps us make sense of the world and, and our place in it. So that's all good. However, sometimes our desire for order or control or clarity or understanding can begin to conflict with our relationship with God and lead us into places that we don't want to go. Because God and his will are not ordered in the way that always makes the most sense to us. It's not always directly under our control, the things he chooses to do. It's not always clearly understood why he does a certain thing or why he says a certain thing. The question is, when this happens, when our desire for order meets with God's will and our misunderstanding of it, do we abandon our desire for control and simply trust? Or do we bend our perception of God to our frame of mind? So today, I'd like to illustrate one way in which we can be susceptible to allowing our proclivity towards order and control to influence our perception of God. And there are many different paths I could take. One might be, uh, you might look in the Bible and say, well, God said this thing that doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit with who I understand him to be or who I want him to be. And so the question is, do we bend his word to match what we understand God to be? Or do we take it on face value and say, I might not understand this right now, but this is clearly what it says. Maybe an action of God in the Bible. We look at an action that God does and we'll say, that seems harsher than I care to admit that God can actually be. 
So do we water it down and say, well, you know, God must have done this, or this must be a backing thing we don't understand that helps us to kind of palate, uh, you know, find palatable the actions that God does? Or do we look at that and say, God is the standard. He is right and just and mold our own understanding of him to fit that thing. What we're going to be looking at today is a bit more obscure than both of those examples, but I think because it's obscure, we might be less inclined to realize that we're guilty of it. And so it's worth looking into, um, and this topic is about God's movement. And I know right now that might not make a lot of sense, but that's what we're going to be talking about today, God's movement. And if it doesn't make a lot of sense to you right now, I promise it will as we progress, so just bear with me. But to look into this topic of God's movement, we're going to take a look at the people that often we want to denigrate, but so often we end up emulating ancient Israel. And we're going to start back with Abraham. You'll remember that Abraham, one of the patriarchs, uh, was a, a fairly nomadic person. When God first speaks with him, he initially tells him to move. That's the first command we get to Abraham is get out of your country. Get up and move. We don't, I don't want you sitting still, being stagnant in this place. And so Abraham does. He listens and he picks up his life and he moves and he sets on this series of events where he and his family will slowly grow, but they're always from one place to the next, never quite finding rest, never quite finding a home. But God does promise them in a covenant uh, in Genesis chapter 15, he promises him that he will have a homeland, that his journey is not for nothing, that he is being led somewhere. So in this covenant in Genesis 15, God promises him future control of the promised land, but also outlines a time leading up to that when the descendants of Abraham, ancient Israel, will be in a foreign nation and they're going to undergo affliction. So let's pack this into our mind. We're going to try and get in the the frame of reference of Abraham and his sons and then their sons after them. Because this covenant was passed down from generation to generation. It was foundational for the people who interacted with God and waited for his promises that we know as Israel. And this covenant would have been roughly 430 years prior to the Exodus. A lot of people want to think that, um, well, they were in slavery for about 400 years, but Galatians kind of blows that out of the water. 430 years was from the time of Abraham journeying in Canaan all the way to the Exodus. This was the time of Israel in a foreign land. And so for 430 years, that's a long time, right? I mean, We think of 430 years ago, um, I actually looked it up, Shakespeare was writing his first poems 430 years ago. So it's a long time, and yet there's not an elementary school student that doesn't probably know the phrase to be or not to be, right? So it's conceivable that these things are passed down. And Shakespeare is far less important to me than a covenant made with my family long, long ago. So it makes sense that Abraham would have passed this down to his family, to Isaac, then to Jacob, then to the patriarchs. So these people knew this promise of God. They knew that they would be wandering for a time. They knew that they would be in a strange land, but that eventually God would fulfill his promise and dwell with them in this promised land. If you would turn with me to Genesis 46. Genesis 46, and this picks up in the life of Jacob. Because you can imagine Jacob, his great-grandfather Abraham spoke with God, knew this promise. His father Isaac had spoken with God, knew the promises for his family. Jacob himself had spoken with God and knew the promises and passed them on to his sons as well. And so we'll see some of Jacob's trepidation 
We know the story of Joseph, how he went into Egypt, and then Jacob and the brothers all followed after um, upon realizing that it was Joseph who was there. But imagine this, Jacob is in Hebron. He's in the land that is generally believed to be the promised land. And now he's supposed to leave to go into captivity. He already has God's promises. He's there in the land. Why leave to a foreign land? Why abandon that promise? This probably didn't sit right with Jacob. Even though he knew the promise that they would be enslaved in a foreign land, he knew that. But even then, as Jacob, so I'm supposed to leave the land that you've promised me to go into this land that for now looks good. They promise food, but eventually, according to my grandfather Abraham, or great-grandfather Abraham, will lead to captivity of my, my generations after me. This doesn't sit right with Jacob. And so look at what God does to assure him that he's making the right move. Genesis 46, starting in verse 1. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. Now, Jacob had kind of a touch-and-go relationship with God. Sometimes he's following after him very well. Sometimes it seems like he's almost running from him. But this moment before going into Egypt, it's like, it's like making one last ditch phone call before, you know, just like, God, are, are we sure about this? You know, like, I got to connect with you one more time to make sure I'm doing the right thing. And so he goes to Beersheba, offers sacrifices to God of his father Isaac. Interesting, it's not claimed for himself. And then in verse 2, then God spoke to Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. So he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. Meaning that when Jacob died, Joseph would be the one to close his father's eyes, and he would die peacefully with his sons around him. So this thing was assurance to Jacob. And the assurance was that God was going to go with them. He was not leaving them or having them leave his presence. He would be with them. And this comforted Jacob, the fact that God would travel into this foreign land, into this land of idolatry, into this land of paganism. He would be with them and he would still be their God and he would still fulfill his promises. God would go with Jacob. So then you'll remember Israel remains in Egypt for just over 200 years. Um, we went over that just a minute ago. Just over 200 years, they're slaves in Egypt. And this is not a small amount of time. 200 years ago in America, things looked drastically different. So I'm not going to minimize how long of a time that was. But when you have a promise like God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you don't forget that easily. These are, th these are the stories that they would have grown up with about their grandfathers and their great-grandfathers. These are the things that they would have held on to to maintain their identity in a foreign land. So they remembered the promises. And throughout the beginning of the book of Exodus, you'll notice that while Israel was slaves in Egypt, they still believed God's word to Jacob. And you hear them. They fear him in certain situations. They cry out to him in other times. It's clear that while they're angry and that they seek deliverance, they don't think God is necessarily far. They don't understand what he's doing or why he's as silent as they, see, they uh, think he is. They wish he would speak more evidently. They wish he would deliver them out of the land. But they don't seem to think he's far away or that he's abandoned them entirely. Otherwise, they would have abandoned hope and stopped crying out to him. So they know that God is with them. Then, if you would turn with me to Exodus 3, fast forward in history just a little bit. 
Exodus 3, we have Moses on the scene. We'll start reading in verse 16. Exodus 3.16, this is the, the burning bush section where Moses speaks with God through the burning bush. God says this, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, appeared to me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. Now this word visited almost seems like God was far away. He was distant, but then he, he popped in for a minute just to see how they were doing. The real word here is um, pakadti, and in Hebrew it means to watch over, or to oversee, or to care for. So he didn't just stop in and visit Israel. He had overseen their struggle in Egypt. He watched over their struggle in Egypt. He cared for them while they were struggling. Their God was a present God. Not only was he in Egypt with the nation of Israel, he was also in Midian with Moses at the same time. He knew where his people were, and he was not hindered by physical space in being with them wherever they were. Now, to us, who are spread across, you know, America or even the world, we don't really have a problem with this. We know that God is with me and with you wherever we are. He's omnipresent, right? This is not really an issue, and it doesn't seem to be an issue for ancient Israel either. They understood that he could be in Midian and in Israel with them. But God had moved with Israel from Canaan, into Egypt, and then, you know the rest of the story, he very evidently moved out with them. So turn forward to Exodus 13, and we'll see that. Exodus 13, and we'll start reading in verse 20. This is right after Israel is granted freedom to leave the land of Egypt. They're finally no longer slaves, They get to leave. They're free to go and worship their God. Exodus 13 says this. So they took, uh, starting in verse 20, so they took their journey from Sukkoth and camped at Etham at the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so as to go by day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. So he made certain that they knew that he was not only with them in spirit, but moving with them actively from camp to camp, from location to location, from country to country, from city to wilderness. He was with them actively, and they saw him move. And in this sense, Israel actually didn't wander. They followed God, and the path didn't make sense to them. It doesn't make sense to us as we look at the direct routes they could have taken to the promised land. But they weren't wandering. They were following God, and they knew that he was there with them. And on throughout the wilderness time, God continued to show them that he was with them, moving with them wherever they went. This included the continuation of the pillar of fire and cloud, which we can see here in Exodus 13, as well as the filling of the tabernacle with the glory of God. This was a huge moment. Imagine, we're looking forward to the millennium when God will dwell with mankind again, right? This was like a millennium to them. This is what they had hoped for. God is with man again. The promise is fulfilled. Now, it wasn't fulfilled uh, in, total, in totality, obviously, because only Moses could, or Moses couldn't even enter into the Holy of Holies. It had to be Aaron. But they recognized this was a big deal. Something that they had waited for from the time of Adam was fulfilled. They were brought together with God again, and they saw him there moving with the camp. 
So God went to great lengths to show his people that he went with them. And then later he also had them build the Ark of the Covenant uh, during this interim wilderness period. You remember the Ark of the Covenant? There's movies about it. One of the most famous relics in all of Bible history. An incredible thing. If, if it's out there somewhere, I hope it's found because I would love to see it. That is like such a cool mystery. I just, I love it. But they built, built the Ark of the Covenant, and you'll remember in Joshua's time, they actually carried that Ark around the city. We often think of the trumpets, you know? They just played musical instruments. They also had the Ark of the Covenant. And this started to, in a way, skew their view of God's movability. So if, if they had attributed the miracle of the fall of Jericho to the blowing of trumpets, they probably would have blown trumpets around every single city in the area, but they didn't do that. What they did do, however, was take the Ark of the Covenant with them into battle from that point forward. Not to say they didn't have trumpeters, not to say they didn't have um, musicians in their army, they did, and there's countless stories about that too. But they started to rely on this Ark of the Covenant as an indicator of where the presence of God was. And so they have two things where God is located. He's located in the tabernacle, and he's located in the Ark. And so he's still movable, you know, we can take the ark into battle with us and God goes with us, but it's only where the ark is. And look, he's stationary, he's with us in the camp, but he's not around the camp, he's in that building over there. And so rather than God being this almighty, all-powerful being who was in this nation, then this nation, in Midian and in Egypt at the same time, he started to be kind of boxed in, where the way in which he moved was the ark or the tabernacle. And if you think about it, it's interesting because that started to make it so that it wasn't God moving. It was the people moving God. The Levites would pick up the tabernacle and move it. The Levites would pick up the ark and move it. So it wasn't God moving. The people began to move God. And this is how they started to think. And you'll notice this in the time of the judges. If you'll turn to 1 Samuel 4. First Samuel 4, and we'll start reading in verse 1. So Israel is always at battle with someone at this point. There's a lot of conflict in the land. At this time, they're at conflict with the Philistines, who consistently plagued them. They're like a seafaring people, and you'd think they'd only be good at sea, but they're not. They're excellent on land, too. And they did a lot of, like, guerrilla warfare stuff, and so... These guys were constantly annoying to Israel. And so Israel would, it, it's like, it's one thing to defeat a mighty army. It's another thing to defeat a mighty army that just annoys you daily. You know, there, there's something about that that just feels good. And so the Philistines would antagonize them. We'll see that with David and Goliath. And then Israel would just kind of be baited into fighting them. And then they would lose sometimes. So not always the best choice. But here they're, they're encamped. Um, and they're about to fight the Philistines. And it says, the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in a line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. 4,000 men. Sometimes we read through these passages, we're just like, yeah, it's a lot of people. 4,000 men. That is, think about how many that is. It's a massive amount of people. Our entire Feast of Tabernacles do not, you know, one location does not equate to 4,000 people. So multiply Panama City Beach out four times. That's a lot. 
They killed 4,000 people in the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Verse 4. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. He's enthroned there. Right? So, yes, God did say he would meet with them at the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. But they started to see this as God is sitting on that seat. We'll just bring his chair. You know? And then he's here with us. Who is enthroned between the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, uh, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Verse 5. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Now, whether the people of Israel reported that their God had come into the camp or the Philistines had just assumed that God had come into the camp based upon the reaction of Israel, either way, it seems clear that Israel equated the presence of God with the Ark of the Covenant. They had brought God with them into the camp. They would be saved because they had moved God. Not God had moved on their behalf. They were saved because they had moved him. And you'll notice in verse 21, if you'll just go down a little bit from there, Uh, This is in the aftermath. This is the daughter-in-law of the priest Eli. She has a child, and she names him Ichabod, which means inglorious. And she says here, the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God has been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband, who had just died. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. The glory of God and the presence of God at this time were the exact same thing. The Shekinah glory that came down and filled the tabernacle was the presence of God. And so she, look, think of what she's saying. She's not saying that, oh, well, the ark is captured and what an important piece of uh, our history and what an important thing that God does choose to meet with us there on the mercy seat. She believed that God himself had been stolen from the land. They had moved him and then he had been stolen. So yes, God could move, but he was relegated to movable objects, the tabernacle and the ark. Now eventually, if we fast forward a little bit further, Israel got the ark back and it was a big deal. The people still didn't seem to understand that God was with them despite the ark not being there. So when they got it back, it was like, awesome, God has returned to the land. Look at what a great thing has happened here. But the ark did not equal the favor of God. They could not bend him to their will. They did not learn this lesson of God's ability to move and his all-powerful nature. So now let's fast forward again to David's time. Turn to 2 Samuel 7, just a few chapters over. Second Samuel 7. Verse 
let's start reading in verse 1. We're going to read a, a pretty good chunk of scripture here. hope you don't mind. It's always good to put more Bible in there, you know, but sometimes it's like, all right, hold on, stop. Tell me what that meant for a second. So we'll try and do that as we go. 2 Samuel 7, verse 1. Now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house, this is David, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. So David was making this distinction between permanent and temporary, established and movable. And he thought, that's, that's not right. God should be somewhere permanent. God should be somewhere established. Why am I elevated above him? This was a good motivation. It's not wrong to want to elevate God above the king. This was probably what David was king for, because he should have had this humble attitude. But you'll notice what, what happens here in verse 3. Then Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. The phrasing of that almost seems like he had dwelt in a house before, but he didn't. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, from all of Israel's history, I have not lived in an established temple in a home that mankind could build for me. I've moved about with you. In verse 7, wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people, over Israel, and I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you and have made you a great name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously, since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. Also, the Lord tells you that he will make you a house." So David wants to plant God somewhere. He'd like to establish him in this land. He wants to build a house for him. And God's speech here says, I will plant you, David. I will build a house for you. Now, he doesn't totally throw the idea of a temple off the table. Some people uh, kind of debate on this, whether David was right or wrong to build a temple. It seems like that's the wrong question. God allowed it. He worked with it. And so I don't think we can fault David for, for this, but... He is making the point that he's, he's beyond living in a physical place. He is everywhere. He is moving always. He is ever present. And he just wants that to be clear to David because the people have kind of slid into this idea of, well, God is where his relics are or God is where the tabernacle is. And that's just not true. So I don't think David was wrong to show God respect greater than the king, but I do think it's wrong to believe that God can be confined. And that's what the warning is here. God is the one who establishes. God is the one who takes you from the sheepfold and makes you the king. God moves you. You don't move God. He's in control. Now, it seems, though, that David got the warning because if we look at Solomon's speech as he dedicates the temple, it seems like Solomon understands this to a point. Now, look at how appropriately he views God's presence and his inability to be contained. If you go to 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings 8. We're just kind of flying through like, 
I, kind of, I love it. It's so fun. Like the story of the Bible is the coolest thing in the world to me. And often we read it piecemeal or like out of order. And so to do it in this order is just very fun to me. So I hope it's uh, edifying for you as well. First Kings chapter eight, starting in verse 27. This is part of, like I said, Solomon's dedication of the temple. He says, but will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Yet give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy. Lord my God, hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence this day. May your eyes be open towards this temple night and day, this place of which you said, my name shall be there, so that you will hear the prayer of your servant, hear the prayer your servant prays towards this place. Verse 30, hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel. When they pray toward this place, hear from heaven your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. So Solomon understands that God is transcendent. He says that he is there in presence of the people right now. He has also promised to place his name, which name and glory and presence, these are all very similar concept in the ancient uh, Hebrew mind. So to place his name there meant that God was going to be there. But he also knows that God is not confined to this box of a room that they've built. God dwells in the heavens, and even those heavens cannot contain him. God is transcendent. He could look down over the whole earth. He could hear anybody praying to him earnestly at any given time. So he was present without having to be present in a building. He could come and go as he pleased and still be omnipresent. So they kind of get back on track, right? God is transcendent. We understand this. At least Solomon did. But over time, it seems like the people slipped back. They began to understand God differently again. Now that this temple was a permanent fixture in the land, it seemed that God was also a permanent fixture in the land. And this is a common belief in ancient paganism as well. Their gods stuck in their borders. It was a God of this nation in this border. It was a God in this temple. I could go and meet him at this temple. We don't have that. We don't have concepts for that now. We can pray wherever we are and know that God is with us. We're entering into a holy place with God. Paganism didn't have this. And so that seemed to seep into the mindset of the Israelites as well, that God was the God of Israel, not the God of the earth, right? Now, we have different terms for that. God of the earth could mean, well, that the earth is subservient to him. We know that that's not true right now. But it does not mean that God is not in control of the earth, that the whole earth is his. And we see that in Psalms, but it doesn't seem like the people really internalize this. And we'll see this with what happened next. Because eventually Jerusalem is captured. And we know this. Babylon comes in, sacks the, not only the nation and takes away the people captive, but just obliterates the temple. And the people are absolutely distraught. And you can see this. If you'll turn with me to Psalm 137. Because if we can imagine their despair at losing the Ark of the Covenant to the Philistines, they were a wreck. I mean, people were falling over dying, having premature uh, births, and naming their child things like despair. Or, and that, I mean, that is, that is a heavy time. They believed that God had left them, that God was stolen from them. So now imagine how much deeper their sense of God's established nature was now that this temple was built, this grand thing. They believed they could go and converse with him there. And you'll see that the despair increased when the temple was destroyed and they were taken captive. Psalm 137, starting in verse 1. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yea, we wept. When we remembered Zion, we hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it. 
For there, those who carried us away captive asked of us a song, and those who plundered us requested mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How? Not, okay, I will, it's hard because I'm sad. How am I supposed to do this? How do I sing a song to God when God is back in Israel and I am in Babylon? Who will hear? What's the point in worshiping a God that doesn't hear me, that is gone back in the temple somewhere? I don't even know what happened to him now. They destroyed the temple. Where is he? He's abandoned us. Look, we're in captivity now. And we, the foolish people, don't even have him in a movable way anymore. We don't even have the ark to bring with us. He's back there in Jerusalem. So not just weeping because their lives have been, have been upended, but because God, their one hope of salvation and rescue, was back in Jerusalem. So now that we have all of that loaded into our brains, as they would have, right? This is the history that they lived. This is the stories they grew up hearing. This is the, the life of the patriarchs and all the way down to the people in the exile. This was their history. This was their, their story. Now that we have all that loaded into our brains, let's see if we can get this all from their perspective. Their perspective had gotten them to a place regarding God's movability that allowed them to despair when they were taken from the land. So then imagine then, understanding that God in their minds is stationary, that God was with the land of Israel, confined to those borders. Imagine how amazing this would be in Ezekiel 1, if you'll turn there with me. Ezekiel chapter 1, we're just going to jump through this chapter, not reading the whole thing. It says, now this is from the exile, right? These people are in Babylon. They have just had their home destroyed. They don't know where God is, but they know he's not with them. And this is what they see. Now it came to pass in the 30th year in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives by the river Kabar, that the heavens were open and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, which was in the fifth year of King Jehoiakim's captivity, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Kibar, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. Then I looked, and behold, a whirlwind was coming out of the north. A great cloud was raging, fire engulfing itself, and brightness was all around it and radiating out of its midst like the color of amber out of the midst of a fire. Imagine... Ezekiel on the banks of a river, seeing this and running back to his people, telling him, I just saw this. Imagine that you are those people. No hope. God is relegated to a temple that's been destroyed in a land you don't even know which direction it is. Where is he? Who knows? But he's not with you. And this is what Ezekiel is telling you, the priest. Keep going down to the, uh, the bottom of this chapter. Because Ezekiel has an incredible vision of angelic creatures. But then, at the end, it says this. And above the firmament, this is in verse 26. And above the firmament, over their heads, over the heads of these incredible, awesome, angelic beings, over their heads was the likeness of a throne, in appearance like a sapphire stone. 
On the likeness of the throne was a likeness with the appearance of a man high above it. Also from the appearance of his waist and upward, I saw as it were the color of amber with the appearance of fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his waist and downward, I saw as it were the appearance of fire with brightness all around, like the appearance of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day. So was the appearance of the brightness all around it. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard a voice of one speaking. Ezekiel had seen God in a pagan land and he had seen him move. God had moved. God had found them. He had told them time and time again. He had shown them time and time again. He did not operate by the rules that they had set up for him. He transcended their understanding. He moved where he wished. What a relief to find out that they were wrong. But what a terrifying prospect all at the same time. God could follow them to remain their God in a foreign land. Their God was mightier than the lesser gods of this land. He did not respect the borders that men had set up for their gods. God could still rescue his people. He still cared enough about them to move to them no matter how far away they were. God could still save. But also, God could still judge. Their sin of rebellion was still a problem. And now it was facing them like they had never seen it before. C.S. Lewis has this amazing quote, when you're face to face with God, we think that'll be an amazing time where all Christians are vindicated, but really we'll be face to face with perfection for the first time and see just how far short we fall. He says, any man that awaits the coming of the Lord and and says, uh, speed that day is only playing at religion because it is a good time, but it is a terrifying time. I love, ah, C.S. Lewis is so cool. He could still judge. His watchfulness and presence was a fearful blessing. His movement was both surprising, encouraging, and terrifying. So where have you relegated God to? Where is it you believe he can't or won't follow you? Sometimes it's into our sinful lives, our worst sins, and sometimes into our biggest trials, where we feel so alone, we don't know who would want to be there with us. These are the times we feel farthest from God. And this is why so many psalms ask of God in moments of trial, where are you? And absolutely, there's going to be times where we feel closer and farther from God. That's going to happen in in our Christian walk. That's just going to be a reality. There are nights where we're going to call out, begging him to show himself to us, begging him to speak a word of comfort into our lives, and we don't hear it. That's going to happen. And we're not sure why we can't see him at those times. But whether it's those times surrounding our darkest sins or our deepest trials, Jesus Christ himself followed us into death itself to show us that there is not a single place he cannot go to pull us back. There is not a single place that God cannot move to be with you, to pull you back, whether it's our sin or our trials. So we need to not make the mistake of Israel tentatively assuming that he's in the places you expect him to be but nowhere else. He's not locked inside of this building. He is not only in a conversation with you and another like-minded Christian. He is everywhere. He is God of this world and he moves. He was with them in Egypt. He was with them in Israel. He was with them in Babylon. And now he moves and lives with us today. He's not going to run from us. Deuteronomy 31.8 says, I will not leave you or forsake you. And we cannot be taken from him. John 10.27 says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. 
My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. So in your deepest sin and in your worst trials, he is there. Let's read one final verse about the good shepherd who follows close, moves with us, and is bound by nothing. If you turn with me to Psalm 23. Familiar psalm, but I think, or I hope that uh, it has deeper meaning as we've looked at God's ability to move with us today. Psalm 23 says this, starting in verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. No amount of good thing in our lives, no amount of success or happiness or joy is a place that God cannot get to us. Then it switches, switches tone in verse four. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. No low place is a place that God cannot get to. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Because we don't move him, we move to him.